very important that we talk about the leader's own habits, especially our own feeding on God's Word. And in particular, what I'd like to call the leader's secret habit. That's the, that's the title of this first message. The leader's secret habit. In the second session, then, we'll talk about how we draw others into our habits, how we can feed others with God's words, how we can cultivate, help others as they cultivate habits of prayer and of Bible study. And as we come to this topic as leaders, we come first and foremost as creatures. We are not originators. We are not creators. All of us human leaders are first and foremost created. We are first and foremost followers of the God who created us and redeemed us in his son. And so life and leadership begin for us in his giving, not in ours. Because we're not originators, but because we're created, we can't give to others what we don't have ourselves. And so that's why this first session is about the leader's secret habits. So first, we'll focus on hearing before speaking, on receiving before giving, on being fed by God before we are his instruments in the feeding of others. And I love and have found helpful over the years to think of God's means of grace or of the spiritual disciplines in three main categories. First is his own words. So walking in the matrix of God's grace begins with hearing God's voice in his words. Not out in the woods, hearing God's voice in scripture by the power of the Holy Spirit. That is the first and most basic means of God's grace. And then prayer is a derivative means. It's a secondary means. God speaks first, and then we pray to him. He stops. He stoops. He wants to hear from us. Amazing that it is that the living God wants to hear from us, that he invites us to pray, commands us to pray. But we don't start it with prayer. We don't start the relationship by our speaking. He starts the relationship with his speaking, and prayer is our response to his voice. And then fellowship is our life together. God doesn't save us merely as individuals. He saves us to a body. He saves us to the church. And so we hear his voice and we have his ear together in the context of the local church that we call fellowship. So prayer flows from receiving or hearing God's voice. Fellowship then doubles our joy in God by sharing it with others. And our focus here in this first session this afternoon is going to be on this old-timey, maybe controversial word, meditation. If you have an app for meditation, it's probably not what I'm talking about. We are not talking about the emptying of our minds. Rather, biblical meditation is about filling our minds with God's word and with his truth. And then, this is so important, instead of rushing on to something else, lingering, steeping in it, sitting in it, marveling at God's truth. When I went off to college at Furman, 
It was 20 years ago. Don't judge me by Furman today. I don't even know about Furman today. I live in Minnesota now. I had to learn how to make sweet tea for myself. Mom had always provided it for me, and I wanted to have some sweet tea. And so I had to learn about the steeping process. Many in this room, you know well about the steeping process, how important it is to steep the tea well. Even at that early age, that was teaching me about meditation. That as we come to the Bible, as we come to God's Word, we can be so prone in modern life to get through some quick readings, check the box, move on to our phone. Our lives are so filled with activity. If the activity is just scrolling in modern life, the whole train of modern life is against this biblical discipline called meditation, which is not reading the next verse. It's lingering, marveling, pressing that verse, pressing those truths into our soul to be there in those moments, in the secret, in awe of God. Meditation also involves a process. You don't just say, I'm meditating. I'm meditating right now. I just started to meditate. Boom, meditate. That, that, that's why uh, the apps aren't exactly the same thing at best. A biblical meditation. Biblical meditation moves through a natural process. It's the apex of Bible intake, we might call it, of reading God's Word, of studying His Word, of lingering over His Word. It's the, the climax of that whole process. It's, it's not the process from beginning to end. We need to move into something, move to meditation from something, namely from Bible reading, and then from meditation we move somewhere else, which is to prayer. So, in this first session, I want to give you five Ps. I don't always do it this way, but, but this one, I find the five Ps really helpful. You know that the letter P, you, if you want to do alliteration, P always works. All right? the, the words in English that start with P, there are so many. I'm sorry, I'm going to do five Ps for this session. Okay? And these, are, these five Ps are moving toward and from this biblical discipline called meditation. That is what I'm, I'm calling the leader's secret habit that would fill your soul, that would set your feet, that would put you on your two feet spiritually, that would give you strength, give you backbone, give you the kind of life from which you can share with others, that you would first have so that you could share with others. So five Ps leading to and from Meditation. Number one is a plan. And I have two things in mind when talking about plan. Not too complex. It's very simple. The first part of the plan is a time. Biblical meditation as a discipline does not just happen without the planning and the setting aside of some time. Some of you might live unusual lives where this can happen on a regular basis without setting aside time. Many of us do not, in the modern world, live in patterns that will give rise to biblical meditation if we don't plan a time. And as far as what that time might be, Jesus rose early. Not that you have to rise early. It can work at noon, it can work in the afternoon, it can work in the evenings, but one of the reasons that for 2,000 years, Christians have found first thing in the morning 
to be the best time for Bible reading and biblical meditation is because that's when we're typically most awake. And I'm granting some of us need the help of coffee. I'm one of those, all right? I get some help from coffee, but I've gotten my night's sleep in. I'm probably not going to have any more energy than I have about 30 minutes after I've woken up and I've had some coffee. That is the time of the day that we're typically most alert. That's our best energy, our best focus, our best attention of the day. And what we give ourselves to first in the morning sets the tone for the day. What kind of sight, what perspective, what heart, what tone are we setting for the day into which we will be walking? One of the best times where you can carve out time from distraction is in the morning. Take this device and set it aside, just further than arm's length. It does something subconscious to the brain to set it away. You're telling yourself, all right, brain, we're not in phone reception mode right now. We are, we are putting this aside. We're doing something else with our subconscious and our conscious here as we're turning to God's word. And so all of you know that as the day proceeds, things come up. Spouse, family, children, friends, neighbors, at work, things tend to snowball as the day happens. If you set aside time later in the day, it might be interrupted unless you guard that with particular vigilance. And so for most Christians, for most of the history of the church, the first thing in the morning has been the preferred time. Not law. No commandment in the New Testament that you have to do this first. Maybe you could try to apply, seek first the kingdom of God, but not a command and a very preferred time. There's also a place. I think it's helpful to have a, a particular place and to plan ahead on the place. Um, for me, I love having a wide open desk or table where I don't have piles, I don't have distractions. It's a nice clean table. It's me and my Bible and my phone is set at arm's length and I can have the, that focus, that clarity. But wh- whatever your, your place is, I think it's helpful to have established ahead of time a place. And if I go on vacation or am staying somewhere away from home, I try to think the night before, all right, what's my place in the morning? Because I don't want to wake up and think the whole thing out from scratch before the coffee's working. I want to get up and go to the place where I planned, sit down with my Bible, and hear from the living God through his word. Another part of place is knowing where you're going to go in the Bible. Having some kind of reading plan. And be honest with you, when, uh, when I don't have a plan for where I'm going to go, I just default to the shortest epistles. It's like, well, let's read Titus again. Which, and Titus is great. <laughs> I love Titus. But uh, I should read some other parts of the Bible too. Or just go back to Ruth, go back to Jonah. I mean, that's typically where I'm going to go without a plan. Uh, one thing I have found very helpful over the years is a 25-day-per-month plan. There's all sorts of good plans. I don't have the best plan. No plan is the best plan. A plan is the best plan. And I love doing this. It's got four bookmarks that reads in four different places in Scripture, four little short sections each day. If I just read straight through, it's probably 10 to 12 minutes. But what I'm going to talk about here is we want to do more than just read straight through. The leader's secret habit is more than reading straight through. But those four places have me somewhere in the Old Testament, typically in Psalms. Most of you are in Psalms. 
then also some of the wisdom literature, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. There's always one of those spots in the New Testament, so I'm always working through something in the life of Christ in the New Testament. And then the final one is in the epistles. And I love that plan. It has me in, in different spots in the Bible. They're often very short little readings. And as I go into those readings, I know right away where I'm going in the morning. I get up, get my cup of coffee, get my Bible, get my clean desk, and I'm into my passages to read. So there's the first one on a, a plan. Your plan doesn't need to be my plan. My plan doesn't need to be yours. But it's helpful to have a plan first thing in the morning. Second, then, is a pace. I think this is so important. In our Thomas Friedman from New York Times calls it the age of accelerations. Did you know you are living in the age of accelerations? (laughs) The amount of information being produced daily Words published online and in print daily. Possibilities for events. Commitments to this, to that. Would you do this? Would you come to that? Our lives have continued to accelerate, accelerate, accelerate. And we are just humans. We have, now God made humans amazing. So humans have incredible ability to adapt, to flex Some of our forebears would be shocked that we have adapted to this pace of life, that we are able to keep a lot of things together at the pace of life that many of us live. Now, not everybody always keeps it together, right? Talk about burnout a lot. We do live in an incredibly fast-paced society. And my plea with you would be, if there's going to be one place where you stand against the tides of rushing, and of acceleration, and of speed, that it would be first thing in the morning over your Bible. My my plea is that we come to our Bibles at a different pace than modern life. Which means trying to find out what is the pace of the biblical text. I want to read this text at the pace for which it was written. And there's a way to read at a particular pace. And there's also understanding of an ancient text and how ancient texts were written and produced to be read. It's an amazing thing. Like They didn't type, hit send, and it appear on a web and anybody can access it on screen throughout the world. It was a costly endeavor to write things down on papyrus, and have them copied, and have them distributed without planes, trains, and automobiles, have taken by foot. Publication was a very expensive endeavor in the ancient world. You didn't publish willy-nilly. So I'm going to publish this today, or I have, this, I have a hot take. I'm going to publish my hot take. You didn't do that in the ancient world. It was expensive to produce it. It was time-consuming to, to produce it. It passed through multiple editions with secretaries and editors and amanuenses. Don't think that Paul dashed off a quick letter even in prison. He had a secretary. He had help. He had multiple drafts. They produced the final version. They distributed the final version. It was a time-consuming process meant not only to be read, but to be reread and reread and meditated on, which we'll get to. So the Bible is a book that not that God not only means for us to read, but to linger over. So many biblical texts have layers of meaning. 
multiple meanings for single words called double entendre. If you think you see this in the Bible, if you think you see a multiple meaning sometimes, that doesn't mean you're wacky. You might be onto something. The Bible was produced slowly, copied by hand, and meant for us not to read once and be done with, but to read and enjoy for a lifetime. And so pace is very significant. Number one, plan. Number two, the pace. We want to find that pace that helps us digest a biblical text. Third, then, is pause. Plan, pace, pause. And this is the main point. I told you we're going to talk about meditation. The leader's secret habit. Meditation is pausing. If if Bible reading is like watching film, so reading would be watching the film in real time, hitting play. So you remember with me VCRs. There, was, there were things before that too, right? Hitting play, and you watch it in regular time. Reading is like watching, receiving the text in regular time. Then studying is like doing slow-mo. Slow it down. Oh, look what happens there. Did you see that person in the back? You see what else is going on here? As you slow it down to study. You, you ask questions of the text. You try to figure out what's going on in the text. That's study. Meditation, then, is like freeze frame. Pause. Pause the video. And instead of analyzing it as it continues to move, albeit slower... It stops. It stopped. We want to appreciate that moment. We want to see the glory in that moment. See what's going on in this moment and not just have it run quickly through our head, but feel the significance of it in our soul, in our heart. What's going on in this text emotionally? How should I feel? How should my life echo what's going on in this text? That's what meditation is about. So let me give you four truths about biblical meditation. I know my outline's getting complicated at this point. So we got, we got our five Ps going, and then under P3 on pause, we're going to do four truths on meditation, then we're going to finish up the Ps, all right? That's where we're at. So number one about meditation. Number one, God made us to meditate. A very important truth. He made you for this. As we learn to meditate over the Bible, we are not stretching our humanity to its breaking point. We are discovering one of the basic aspects for which the living God made us. Our souls were made for God's new mercies every day. If you wake up in the morning thinking, I want something new, I want, I want something new. God put that in you. He just didn't put it in there for news. He put that in you for him. He means to be new mercies daily to you. Sufficient for each day is trouble of its own. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. God wired us to meditate, wired us to want something fresh. It's a fresh day. My soul wants something fresh. My tummy wants breakfast. My soul wants something fresh, and God means to provide that for us in his word. So God made us not just to do, but also to think. 
and to ponder and to acknowledge and to feel significance of moments, of reality, of truth. The creature does glorify the creator when the creature acts, moves, does. The animals glorify God in doing what they do. A tiger glorifies God. I'm tempted to say more so than a chicken. But, but I love Chick-fil-A. <laughs> animals glorify God in moving, in doing what they do according to God's pattern without stopping to think about it and reflect on it. But God is more glorified when his creatures acknowledge him. He means to be acknowledged. He means for us to recognize him as creator and to thank him as creator. So he made humans the kind of creatures that pause and acknowledge what's going on. We don't just keep moving like animals and doing like animals instinctively. We have higher capacities to recognize, acknowledge. And God's most glorified when his creatures not only acknowledge him, but appreciate him and adore him. And don't just acknowledge him as, well, he's powerful, so I better not cross him. But acknowledge him as, he's amazing. He's delightful. How great thou art, as we sang a few moments ago. Not just dutifully acknowledging his power, but enjoying him, delighting in him, boasting in him. Isn't God great? God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. That is the slogan of our ministry at Desiring God from Pastor John Piper. We say it over and over again. We mean it. So much of what we bend our energies to is not just glorifying God in our lives, in our acknowledgement of him, in our minds, but enjoying him, delighting in him being satisfied in him. And God making us to meditate relates to God being glorified through our being satisfied in him. Not just living our life one motion after another. So that's number one. God made us to meditate. Number two, meditation forms and shapes us. Every day, in tiny little increments that sometimes feel significant, and often don't, and have a massive effect over time. Meditating on God, God's word changes us. It is not an issue for humans of if we will meditate. We will meditate. The question is, on what? Clemson football? Atlanta Braves? Maybe not this spring. Job and money, image and physique, politics, nobody in this room. <laughs> Gene Mathis, he would have been happy to stand up and say, all right, David, politics, yep, politics. Anxiety about our society, news, how much of our meditation time do we stew, do we think about news Ask yourself, what continually captures your attention? What do you default to? 
What inputs, what content is influencing your mind and drawing upon your heart in those default moments? You're not just giving that content that moment. You are being shaped by it. That doesn't mean that the Christian life is a call to nothing more than biblical meditation. Oh, it is. God calls us to move. He calls us to love. He calls us to act. He calls us to do good. And he calls us to set ourselves, set our minds. If meditate is the Old Testament language, the New Testament language is setting our minds and resetting our minds on the things of God, and they shape us, not just filling us in that moment. They do, absolutely. Fills us in the moment and shapes us. What we meditate on, especially when we choose to, so what we hit play on, on these devices, or on the radio, or on the television, what we choose to meditate on formulates and reformulates our desires. It shapes our heart in an ongoing way. And so Christian meditation means setting and resetting our minds and our hearts at, in, at particular moments, deliberately, day in and day out, on the most important focus, namely God himself and Jesus Christ through his word. Number two. That's number three. Here, number three then. Biblical meditation seeks joy in God today, right now. I'm trying to balance the previous point. Biblical meditation is not just being shaped, but it also has an end in itself in that moment, not just formation. It aims to warm the heart, to stir the affections, to satisfy our soul right now in, in the one for whom we were made. Let me give you some old, old quotations from some pastors who, before meditation was a lost art. In slower times. This is from Thomas Watson in the 17th century. He says, study, studying the Bible, study is finding out of a truth. Meditation is the spiritual improvement of a truth. We might say the applying of the truth. First and foremost, to ourselves, in our souls, our own hearts. I don't just want to hear that truth, know that truth. I want to feel some of that truth. And then, applications through our heart into our lives. Samuel Ward, pastor, late 15th century, early, late 16th, early, early 17th. Stir up your soul in meditation to converse with Christ. Look what promises and privileges you have to habitually believe. Now actually think of them. Roll them under thy tongue. Chew on them till you feel some sweetness in the palate of your soul. So what he's emphasizing here is a pausing in our reading to rehearse the truth that we have just reflected on. To chew it, so to speak. Roll it around on the tongue. Trying to experience the juices. Not just rush through a nice expensive steak. But you know how it is. You want to chew that steak nice and slow. Enjoy the flavor and the texture. That's what we do in meditation as we slow down to pause and let God's word feed us right now in the moment. One final quote here from Edmund Calamy, 17th century. He says, in meditation, we are like the bee, B-E-E, honeybee, 
the bee that dwells and abides upon the flower to suck out all the sweetness. To come upon a verse of scripture, a word, a phrase, and like a bee that has found a good flower, try to suck out all the sweetness of that verse. Not just for our head, but to feel the weight and significance of it in the heart. And you might be thinking, this doesn't just happen. You can just sit down and read. You can make yourself sit down and read. You can't just sit down and make yourself feel. That's, that's partially right. You can persist. You can endure. And that's often what it takes. It's, it's a habit that you form of lingering over God's word, of being so shaped. Being, you, you increase the kind of capacity over time to be able to see connections from other texts. I know many of you know what I'm talking about. And you linger over the text and you say, in effect, God, I'm not letting you go. Just like Jacob said, I'm not letting you go until you bless me. I'll sit here another five minutes. I will sit here another 15 minutes. I'll sit here another two hours. Now, realistically, that doesn't, doesn't often happen. But I'm going to sit here. I want to, I want to linger here till you bless me. I want to suck the goodness out of this place you've directed me to in Scripture. And the, uh, I, think, I know at least one Puritan recommended, probably takes half an hour for starters, the whole process of sitting down, praying for God's help, reading the Bible, selecting a, a verse or a phrase to go deep in, meditate over, move into prayer, probably half an hour is typical time for a beginner. I think as you develop the muscle, as you develop the practice, it moves more and more, can move more and more to an hour. Number four then, meditation is a friend of memory. The two go hand in hand. Maybe you have heard, uh, maybe you have felt this in your own life and experienced it, as I have. Bible reading for the morning, it might be noon, it might be nine o'clock, and you don't have a clue what you read. Try to think back on it. Somebody asks, oh, you know, did, what'd you read this morning? I got no clue. And that often happens because it was just, it was simply reading. It passed through your head, you moved on, you got it done. Great job, assignment for the day, done, check the box. But without meditation, you didn't linger over it. You didn't have a chance to press it into the mind, press it into the soul. And so memorization and meditation go hand in hand. Meditation is the key to memorizing Scripture. When you memorize Scripture, it doesn't do any good just to memorize it and not reflect on it. Meditation is what we do with memorized Scripture. And when we meditate on a text, we're more apt to remember it and be able to feed on that text throughout the day. So memory and meditation go together. So that's, that's number four under meditation. Now back to our final two points of our five Ps. We said we move into meditation, and then we want to move from meditation. Meditation leads to prayer. That's number four. That's the fourth P is prayer. Prayer flows from receiving and hearing God's voice. Prayer speaks back to God in light of what he's revealed to us, generally and specifically, about himself in the Bible. And so, I don't know if I can put a number of years on it, but this has been a significant development for me in my adult years 
of moving from reading passages and then pivoting to praying lists to reading, moving into meditation, and then moving from meditation into prayer. So I want to pray for my wife every day and my sons and my daughters and our church and the ministry and neighbors and friends and extended family. But I want the text that I've meditated on to inform those prayers. It makes it real. This is a relationship with the living Christ. He speaks, we hear him. We want to hear him all the way to the bottom in meditation. And then we speak back to him in light of what he said to us in his word. Not this hard pivot from reading to lists, but moving into meditation and moving then into our prayer time, letting what we've lingered over be the terms in which we pray for the day. So I I think of it this way. Begin with Bible, move to meditation, polish with prayer. A little alliteration, the pattern I'm going through each morning. Number five and finally, person. Last P is, is the person. Person is Jesus. And As we come to his word, he is the word, capital W. We come to the word to enjoy the living, risen Christ by his spirit through his word. This Christian meditation. We come to know Jesus, to enjoy Jesus. And the way that we know him and enjoy him is through his word. Also through his people. That's fellowship. We'll talk about fellowship in the next session. Through his word. We seek the satisfaction of our soul in him. It might be worth asking, am I expecting far too little in my devotional time? Am I expecting to get the text read, a little spiritual buzz, Check the box for the day, at least a sense of accomplishment for the day. Am I expecting far too little? Am I coming to meet with the living Christ? Fully God, fully man, in glorified humanity, on the throne of the universe, at the right hand of the majesty, meeting with his people by the power of the Holy Spirit, through the word he gave us by his prophets and apostles. We are not just reading a book when we read the Bible as Christians. We are meeting with a living, divine person. I'll give you this quote as we finish from a guy named Jack Davis, old professor at Gordon-Conwell. The book's called Meditation and Communion with God. He says this about reading the Bible and meditating as Christians. The reader of the Bible comes to the text not as a stranger to Christ, who is the central subject of all Scripture, but as one who is actually connected to Christ by the Holy Spirit, as one who is really in the real presence of the risen Lord in the prayerful reading of Scripture. Meditating on Scripture can and should be a real-time experience 
of communion with the living Christ. That's how Jesus means to meet with us. He's given us his word. He's given us his Holy Spirit to know him, enjoy him, commune with him, meet with him in moving into meditation and moving into prayer. So let me close with this question. You may already be here. You may already be at this place, and there's no tweaking that needs to be done. But a question to ask would be, what would it take to make morning meditation on the Word of God to be the high point of your day? What would it take for you to make this the moment, the moments that would set the tone, set the pace, slow the pace, Set your mind on things above. Remind you of the risen Christ. Draw you nearer to the real and living risen Christ. What would it take to make your time alone with Jesus in the scriptures be the happiest time of your day? Because he does mean to satisfy our souls, the souls he made to be satisfied in his son as we come to him in his word. And as that is then confirmed and echoed in our corporate life together in the life of the church. That's where we'll go in the second session. Let me pray for us. So Father in heaven, we thank you for the book. What a book you have given us. Plenty to satisfy our souls in the power of your spirit for this lifetime and far beyond till we see Jesus face to face. And so, Father in heaven, I pray for these leaders, the lifeblood here of Taylor's First Baptist Church. Father, would you give grace? Would you be the great giver first and foremost? Would they first and foremost come to you to receive, to be satisfied, to be helped, to be strengthened, to be filled, to be fed? And then would you be pleased, Father, to use them by your spirit, in what you have called them to do in the job, in the neighborhood, here at church, and the ministry you've given them at church. But Father, first and foremost, we come as receivers. And we ask that even now, in rehearsing these things tonight, that you would freshly give us postures of receiving your grace, receiving your goodness, receiving your word by your spirit, in Jesus Christ, in this lost art and secret habit of meditation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.